well, well. Look what we got here. Hi, Dan Levy. <laughs> Hi, Brad Boone. Going on, son? <laughs> you tell me, Brad Boone. Uh, see, you can't use that. <laughs> I can believe you. I'll bleep it. What do we got? You done all your homework? I did my homework, even though it's all virtual school right now. All right. How are you, sir? What's new? What's going on in your world? Good. Uh, nothing. Nothing. Nothing new. Chasing kids around, watching ball games, a uh, little golf, little. You know, you know my day. It's boring. No, it's not. It is it's the most really perfect. Boring. Yeah, you have the most perfect I, life I'll after baseball. You, I got, I got my hands full with the kids. This this homes. You know this this virtual schooling. How old? It's wearing me out. How know, old? 16. 16. Well, that's not too bad. Well, they got their phones. You know, you got to keep an eye on them. I go out for a while. I come back. They're in They're in a different room watching TV. <laughs> I thought you had school. Oh, Dad, we do. I got a break. Yeah, they're always on a break. And I feel like a babysitter. <laughs> Kids need to be back in school. Let's go. <laughs> All right. What do we got? Well, Bring it to me. All right, Mr. Boone. Let's set it up, shall we? Welcome to the Brett Boone podcast. I'm Dan Levy. He is Brett Boone. I don't know much. He knows everything. And in the span of this next 30 minutes to 40 minutes, we're going to somehow meet in the middle. He'll educate me a little bit, and I'm going to bust his chops because, let's face it, that's all I'm good for. But we'll start this one because when we first started this podcast, Brett, you and I established a couple of things. We were trying to figure each other out. And the way to do it was to talk about who you thought. I, I asked you who you're, who's going to be the surprise teams, who's going who's gonna to slump and who's going to be bad, and who's going to win the whole thing. Before I could even say the words, who's going to win the whole thing, you said the Yankees over and over and over again. And I said, are you sure? You sure it's the Yankees? You said, I think yes. there was a preface in there, though. No, preface. there was no preface. I asked you flat out 60 well, games. Right. They got the but pitching. Said, they know, got COVID. the hitting. Right. But I said COVID. Who's going to miss time? Who's not? Are the Yankees? Oh, wait, are Yankee players missing time for COVID? No, no. They're missing time for <laughs> whatever they're missing time for. But it, it's kind of a repeat of a year ago. Well, a year ago. It was amazing what they did a year ago with the amount of injuries they had in 2019. Uh, three quarters of their lineup was was out of the lineup uh, for half the year, and they won 100 games. I thought it was it was brilliant. It, you know, I tip my cap to that organization, staff, players, um, and I've been you know I've been on teams like that, and, and I'm speaking to the Yankees a year ago. I've been on teams like that for don't ask questions, don't ask why. It's almost like it doesn't matter where you're penciled in the lineup, where you're hitting, who's playing that day, who's not. There was just something going on, almost magical, and you didn't question it. That cannot keep up for a long period of time. So you got away with it last year and this year, you know, you got, you're missing Stanton, you're missing judge. You missed LeMahieu a little bit. Torres has been out. Sanchez is having a real tough time. The key, the key for me from the beginning is, and always has been, I know what I'm going to get out of Cole. I know what I'm going to get out of Tanaka, who's been a staple for the Yankees and done kind of an underrated pitcher for, for the last 15 years for those guys. Or, or 10 years. Let, let me not date myself too much. 
But uh, Paxton's the key. And, and you know, here we are again, and he's hurt again. It's big when you're missing a big number two guy in the middle of that rotation. You know, the, the bullpen's been beat up a little bit, and the lineup's been kind of decimated. And, and you don't have guys, your normal guys, playing their normal position. And, uh, you know, in a division right now that's that that's has Tampa Bay at the top, uh, it's going to be tough sledding for them from here on out. You know, they're they're inching closer to 500. The key is 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 getting to the postseason. Good news and bad news for the Yankees. Good news is if it ended today, they'd be in the postseason, and hopefully they can get that roster healthy. The bad news is is you still got 20 games, and and they're on a slide right now, so they got to find a way to right that ship. I don't know how you do it if you don't have the players to put out there. You know, it's 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 going to be tough for them. But uh, Tampa Bay's really separated themselves, especially in that division. I don't even not only in that division, I think in that league. You know, and there's a lot of good teams in the American League this year. But uh, I think Tampa Bay for me is is kind of uh, separating themselves a little bit, and I think they're the team to beat over there. Before we get down towards Tampa Bay, let's keep it here with the Yankees for just one minute. When you have a guy like Aaron Judge, who probably could be one of the best hitters in the next couple of years, I would say, what do you do to preserve a guy like that? It seems like he's always coming down with something right when they need him the most. So he's never, he's always has an injury of some sort. Something always happens to him when it's right in the thick of where they really could use him. What do you do to preserve a guy like that? Or is it just the way he's going to be for the rest of his career? Well, I don't know. You know, you don't know. He's such a young player, and, and uh, he was off to a big-time start this year. And, and I was watching him, and I was kind of making note, like, wow, Aaron Judge, for that frame that he has, that swing he's got is so efficient for Aaron Judge. And it was I was excited to see what he was capable of doing in a 60-game stint. Then the injuries started to pile up, and now we're back to square one again. Um, twofold, I've thought about it. You know, the first thing is you think, how can all these guys get hurt? two years in a row. And and then you start thinking about the dynamic of the team. You ever look at, if you look at the Yankees team right now, and a few times I've been around them, uh, it's the biggest baseball team I've ever seen. I mean, it looks like a football team. Uh, Agreed. So, so guys like Aaron judge, these, this guy's six, eight, two eighty. We haven't seen a hitter like that in this game. You know, he's probably the biggest hitter ever to play. And and you got Stanton right behind him. He's, you know, he's a measly 6'5", 250. These guys got a lot going on, a, a lot of muscle mass, a lot of limb, long limbs. And I don't know if, if, if maybe that's why there aren't hitters like that in the past or consistently those big, huge line uh, or defensive end type players. Um because they're just body, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'm looking for a reason, and I have no idea. But uh, is it because of that size? I mean, I know like it could be. It could be. You it, know, there's it, think about it through the years. Frank Howard, he was one of those really tall six seven. Richie Sexton, who I played with, six seven. But after those guys, before Judge came along and Stanton, nobody's nobody's that big. You know, it, you might be getting on the high end when you're six four. You know, the Alex Rodriguez is the world. The Marks McGuire's of the world. Those guys are 6'4". These guys are 6'8". That's a different, uh, that's a different size. And, and you pack 280 on that, that's, that's a big man in the batter's box. And, and there's probably a reason that it's not the norm. Well, I would have to think, I mean, I know NBA guys have were 
used to be all big and bulky, and then the trend became that all these guys went on a paleo diet and they thinned out and their careers went better. I would have to think a guy who's 280 and 6'8", if you're putting on that much muscle and that much build on your body, when you're swinging at hits like that and, and just going crazy for the, the fence, that much weight and that much muscle just compounding on your body, I don't see it being able to last. It looks like a guy who... Maybe he does need to lean it out a little bit and go on some sort of diet where he's just kind of a little more flexible because he doesn't look very flexible. He's just like a, a hitting machine that is, it just always kind of has a, uh, a ding to it. Well, I, I don't think, I don't know. I, I think we're all, I think a lot of it is, is probably genetic. You know, we're all, we're all genetically different, you know, for someone like myself, I never stretch. I never stretched one day in my life when I got to the big leagues. I never pulled a muscle. Of course you did. Uh, You're perfect. No, no, it's just genetically, man, and I was tight. I couldn't touch my toes, but I didn't pull a muscle. And I'd hear people telling me, you got to stretch, you got to stretch. Why? You know, if I stretch and I pull a muscle, I'm, I'm from the, you know, I'd like to train and be as efficient as I can. That being said, I'm also from the school of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So that was my approach to it is, you know, once you get a good stretch, you know, it probably feels a lot better. You're not as tight, but I just felt like I'm tight. I move just fine side to side. Why mess with this? I, I've never pulled a muscle and I never did pull a muscle. <laughs> and for me, stretching wasn't a thing. Now that doesn't mean for the next guy that stretching isn't good for him. I think each of us, especially as athletes, and it transcends baseball, goes to football, goes to basketball. Um, you've got to find your way because there's not one way, you know, there's not one way of training, but it's, it's up to the, to each individual athlete to find for themselves what works for them, what produces, what puts them, the most important thing is what puts them in the correct mindset to play this game at the highest level. And that's what I searched for when I was training in the gym, when I was, when I was doing the diet, um, it wasn't necessarily I'm doing this diet, but to to look a certain way. But I knew it was a it was a form of discipline. I've got to get my mind right. And as the athlete, is what puts you in that frame of mind. I always thought showing discipline from a dietary standpoint for four months leading up to the season. Man, I I just thought that if I can do that, I can do anything. If I don't cheat on my diet one time for four months. I've got an edge over the guy because I can look in that clubhouse and go, I know you didn't do what I did and you didn't do what I did and you and I, you didn't do what I did. I had to find a way to have a little bit edge over each person I came in contact with. And I use that through training. I tried to train harder than anybody else. Did not saying I did, but that was my goal. And I tried to be as disciplined as I could with my diet because that made my, my mind stronger. And I was, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of and a big believer in the mind is your, still your most powerful weapon. You can be fast. You can have a cannon. You can have the fastest hands in the game, but your mind is number one. Your strong mind, uh, I think, is is a tough thing to do. How do you get a strong mind? Well, sometimes you got to build it. It's the toughest thing to do to trick yourself. But if you believe you're great, you are great, and I believe that. Too complicated. No, not complicated at all. I understand it. The mental, the mental game is is probably ninety five percent of every athletic competition. If you feel like you have a a better edge over somebody and it's in your brain, then you're probably going to produce more. So I get it. I understand it. 
It's like yeah. when I size up a buffet. I know I'm going to take out everybody else that's around right. there. And, and, and I'm going to gonna go eat to more steak room. and chicken because I knew what I was going for. Right. And when we go into the weight room, we're not there to hit balls farther. I'm there to build my body so it so it holds up over a six-month season and hopefully the postseason. So when I'm diving and jamming my shoulder, I want to be as strong as I can so my body can withstand that. So in September, I'm not sucking as much air as, as if I didn't prepare my body that way. So that's why you train, not to hit balls farther, not to hit more home runs. You're either a home run hitter or you're not. It doesn't matter how much muscle you add or how strong you are or how much weight you can throw around in the weight room. That, that's not what a home run hitter is. That's technique. That's fast twitch muscle fiber. It, you're either a home run hitter or you're not. But that's not why we train. You train to keep your body as strong as you can so you can withstand six six months. And that's why baseball, I still, and, and I've had plenty of arguments with football players on this, I still think it's by far the toughest sport. Because football, you get your brains beat in once a week. Baseball, you just get nicked and prodded 162 games in a row. And in the end, you're just, you know, you're kind of head spinning, but, but it's all worth it <laughs> some years. Well, the nice thing is about baseball is that if you're a pitcher, you can play once every five days, which is kind of nice. A guy like you is a position player. You don't get that kind of luxury. And it is the hardest thing in the world is to hit a baseball coming at you like that. I still don't understand. You say it's muscle memory and things like that. What do you do when there's shadows on the field? I've been in Yankee Stadium before when I was, when I was about in my teens. And my cousin and I went there, and the shadow is so deep. And so weird that I got the sun facing only one side of my face. And when we left the ballpark, only the right side of my face got sunburned. Like I was the Phantom of the Opera. As a player, how does that work? How do you guys, how do you guys maneuver and how do you guys prepare for a game where there's shadows coming in every different direction and that ball becomes almost hit at night? Well, I mean, as a player, as a hitter, it's your biggest nightmare is to check the, the schedule and see a five o'clock start. That's why we start at seven o'clock or we start at noon. When you start a noon game, there's no shadows because the sun's in a certain position. Uh, you start at seven o'clock, sun's in most parts of the country is going down. And there's not going to be any shadows. But those five o'clock starts, when the sun's at that weird angle, it's hitting off the backdrop. There's shadows on the field. It drives me nuts to listen to commentators say, well, the shadows are on the field and, and it's tough to see. It's. Okay, let me let me tell you what it is. It's when the hitter and the pitcher are both in the dark, so both in the shadow, and there's a bright backdrop. You get me? So mm-hmm. it's almost like you got pulled over for the police by the police. Oh no, I I totally understand. And, that. and they threw that light in your face. Okay, you can't see the cop that puts a spotlight on your face. That's what it's like hitting when you and the pitcher are in the shadow. But there's light on the backdrop, and mm. it's a nightmare. And in Seattle, boy, it, because it's in the northwest, it didn't get dark. In the middle of the summer, it wouldn't get dark till 9 o'clock. So for two innings, two, three innings every night, it was just kind of like, wow. You know, it's hitting hard enough. Now we're hitting in the dark. And they ended up getting this honeycomb backdrop, which was a 2 or $3 million backdrop. And they said it actually sucks the sunlight in. And I'm like, yeah, what is this from, you know, another planet? It ended up really working, but those games are the toughest. And, and, and 
it just it's just frustrating to me when I listen to the common commentators on TV and they try to explain what the shadows are and they got no clue what the shadows are. It's very basic. When the pitcher's in the dark, you're in the dark, and there's light behind you. If you're in the shadows and the and the backdrop is dark as well, well, you can see fine. What's but the it's trick? just those times when you can't. What's the trick? Is there a trick? In the shadows? Yes. Uh, nothing. You're kind of you're kind of kind of lucky, lucky, and it's really tough to see spin on the ball. I used to tell the pitchers, you know, when when there's a tough time hitting, I, I'd say spin it as much as you can, and it, and it doesn't even have to be a good breaking ball or a good curveball. Almost hang it because as hitters, we would give up on it out of hand because we can't see the rotation on the ball. Now I'm not saying you can't get a hit. Yeah, you can get a hit, but it is really difficult you know you know once again it's it's tough enough to to hit at that level let alone having really bad vision trying to do it so it's something you just deal with you get through it and and you know when you when you're really feeling sorry for yourself you just think well everybody else has to deal with it too and it's not quite as bad but yeah hitting hitting at those those five o'clock games those Sometimes those six o'clock games three o'clock games uh, there's going to be a portion of that game two three innings where you're going to be in real tough hitters innings and uh, you just hope your, your number in the lineup ain't coming up. That's good managing skills there, Brett. I would say that about you. Speaking of good managers, what makes a good manager? Not that you're related to anybody in particular, but in the eyes of Brett, Boone, what makes a great manager? Well, I was, I was pretty lucky. I played for a lot of good ones. I played for, uh, Davey Johnson and I played. Was Davey Johnson cool? Because I'll, I'll just I'll just do this right, one right here. I know you're uh, your boys with guys who are part of the Mets era, but I was six and living in Long Island when the Mets won the World Series. And because I was so little and baseball was so big back then, Davey Johnson was like the biggest person in my life. <laughs> Him and Daryl Strawberry. Dave, Davey, Davey was cool. Was he Davey cool? Was he cool. seemed like an yeah. awesome dude. I like Davey. I, I, I played for Davey. I played for... Uh, uh, Lou Pinella, who to this day is probably my favorite. Uh, I played for Bruce Bochy, tremendous. Bobby Cox, Hall of Famer. Um, Bob Melvin, the current manager with the Oakland A's. Uh, Mike Hargrove. So I, I, I was pretty fortunate. I got to play for a lot of really good managers. And it, it's the game's a little bit different now because of the data and all the – because not – now you're not just dealing with your bench coach and your general manager, but you're also dealing with the data people that are they're constantly feeding you data and what the lineup should be and what, what it shouldn't be and who should play and who shouldn't. I think, I think being a manager, there's three basic things, and it's handling your clubhouse, knowing who to give a hug to and know who to give a kick in the, kick in the ass. I think that's the first thing, to get the same result – I think the second thing is handling your general manager and having that rapport with him because you got to think about it. You know, as a manager, you're going to have a little bit of an ego, but your general manager is have a little bit of an ego too. You know, he put that team together. He signed the guys. He gives them to you to manage, but he wants a little bit of a say in that too. So it's really important how you interact with that with that general manager. Some are going to be diff- more difficult than others. Some are going to have a really good relationship. And the third is just handling the press. Press is the easy part. You know, anybody can sit there and, and give a 30-minute BS session, tell everybody what, the, what they want to hear, protect your players at all costs. Uh, but I think really it is that, that 
relationship with the players. And it doesn't mean the players got to love you. You know, the, the, a lot of the managers I play with, it's not that everybody loved them, but everybody respected them. Um, and that's the most important thing. Uh, let me cover it again. Once again, getting the, getting the most, getting the same result from different players. Some, some guys, you've got to challenge. You've got to kick them in the butt. You know, you got to give them some tough love and they'll respond positively to that. Some guys, you give them that tough love, they'll quit on you. So you can't do that. You might have to give them a hug and stroke them a little bit to get the same results. I think the good managers, just like in any other business, it's reading people. It's dealing with people. And I think the great ones really know how to deal with people. I also think as a manager, you've got you to have a little distance. It's not like you're a coach. Coaches can be yucking it up, hanging out in the clubhouse with the players. As a manager, you have to keep that a little distance just to kind of let you know I'm the manager. You know, we don't go out and have a beer after the game. Coaches can do that with the players. But I think the great managers keep a little bit of distance between themselves and the players because they got to make those tough decisions. The coaches never have to make the decision. And if there's ever a tough decision coming your way, the coaches just point at the manager. Hey, it wasn't me. It was him. So so I think by keeping that distance, keeping that, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, intrigue, I think it keeps you on your toes as a player. But I got a chance to play for a lot of great ones. Uh, I, I would say to this day, Davey Johnson was probably uh, the best I played for. And it wasn't necessarily because he was my favorite manager. He wasn't. But I'll tell you, I, I couldn't tell the difference after a game if I went three for four with two three-run home runs, or I went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. I couldn't tell the difference in the way he reacted towards me or treated me, and I thought that was really professional. He just really had his emotions in check and really didn't wear them on his sleeve. You know, you, you didn't know what he was thinking, always poised, and I thought he was a real quality manager. But like I said, the list I, I, I told you, the guys that I got to play for, uh, there wasn't a bad one in the lot. In terms of what a coach does. Were you ever coached in the major leagues? Was it ever like, did you actually learn stuff or were the, were the, was it mostly just managing you when you were being, when you were a pro, they say like most of the times, like you just said right now, managers, their job is to manage personalities, manage different guys. But did you ever learn anything new? Did you ever go like, man, that coach just taught me something. I didn't even know. And I'm, I'm a pro. Uh, not necessarily. Not, not in the big leagues. Uh, you learn from other players tendencies uh you know I, I was constantly learning throughout my whole career you know you never and still to this day i'm learning something new my son's coming to me with new techniques that these kids are doing now at, at 20 21 years old and i'm kind of like wow i wish i would have had that in my day so <laughs> you know you can always learn and i'm constantly learning but as far as being coached or, or <laughs> you know uh taught uh when you get to the big leagues the teaching's over and that's what the minor leagues is for. That's what A ball is for. That's what double A, that's what instructional ball is for to teach these kids. Once you get to the big leagues, you, you're a big boy now. And you're expected to be, especially when you're a veteran. So I, I, I will never say I didn't learn anything. I learned a lot of life lessons from people. I learned a lot of hitting approaches from, from different players that I played with and watching them and how they go about it and what makes them successful. 
you know, and I, I would apply that where it applies to my game. So I was constantly learning, constantly picking people's brains. But as far as, no, being taught something at the big league level, no. Coaches are there to guide. Coaches are there to be a second pair of eyes for you on the base pass. Coaches are, are, are there to give you the readouts and say, hey, give me the last five games on this guy. Give me the give me the pitch counts. Give me, you know, percentage of breaking ball versus slider, percentage of of splits versus change-ups, you know, give me that. And that's what coaches at the big league level do. Um, it's not necessarily a teaching, you know, now sometimes you, you, you have a good rapport with your hitting coach and man, you learn little things and, and you, and you bounce it off of each other. You know, I've had some good hitting coaches. I've had some bad hitting coaches. I've had some guys that were really great for other guys that, that we just didn't have that, that we weren't on the same wavelength. Um, but, but, you know, at, at the big league level, you're on your own because people can guide you as much as they want. When you go to the box, uh, it's just you and, and nobody can hit for you. You know, I tell my kids that all the time. We'll work in the cage and <laughs> we'll get into the game. Well, dad, that's not like in the cage. I said, dude, I can't hit for you. You know, so no, <laughs> if you're looking to be taught or coached, uh, that, that's not, not at the big league level. Where do you rank your brother as a manager? Well, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think he's had a big enough sample size. I, I think from the the start that he's that he's had in his managerial career, he won 100 games two years in a row. And his first year, you know, you, you look, it's the New York Yankees. Um, they're obviously a, a deep franchise that, that has a lot of depth from a personnel standpoint. So there's a lot to draw from. Uh so you have a little bit of an advantage going in saying, you know, with maybe the number one franchise in all of sports, you know, you've got the resources. No argument here. You know, so, so you go into a nice, nice situation. Uh, the trade-off for that is you better win, and we, ex- we expect you to win every single year. And if you don't, we'll get rid of you. So, so there's a give and take there. Uh, I think Aaron's first two years – about as good as you possibly could expect. And especially last year. And, and this is completely uh, taking my brother hat off. It has nothing to do with him being my brother, but I looked at the 2019 season and they won over a hundred games with how much they were beat up, up and down that lineup. And, and they, they won a hundred some games. And, and I remember just thinking, wow, you know, doesn't matter that he's my brother. That's that's an unbelievable run right there. And I remember he was, you know, in the in the running for manager of the year, and he ended up not winning it. And I remember calling him and going, "If you can't win with that job you did with all those injuries, you're never going to win a manager of the year." You know, it was kind of a funny <laughs> thing, but I, you know, I'm really proud of him. He's he's had two years in the Big Apple, and it's tough. You know, you're in the, you're in the hot, you're on the hot seat constantly, you know, when you're managing in New York, but I think he's handled it well. I think he's uh, got great feedback from his players. I think they enjoy playing for him. Uh, Aaron's a people guy. He's a, he, he's very, uh, he's a very likable guy and he gets along with his players and he respects his players. He gives them heads up when they're not playing. You know, if you're a utility player, an extra player, he gives you a heads up before you're going to play. He's got a real good coaching staff. And, and I would say so far in his two, two years and change, I think Aaron's done a hell of a job right up there with the, with the best in the game. But like I said, this is a small sample size. There's a long way to go, and we'll see how he goes. But uh, so far, I would definitely give him high marks. Last question about managing an organization stuff, and I'll move on to something else. Have you ever been part of an organization where the GM 
was more than just a guy in an office where he's in the locker rooms at the end of the game and he's in people's faces and he's he's the guy who's almost stepping over the bounds of a uh, of a, of a manager. I had some real hands-on guys. Um, I don't think I really had a general manager that kind of overstepped his bound. Yeah, I, I think from a player's perspective, we never want the GM around. I was just going to ask, is that something that players want? No, they don't want anybody around. We don't want anybody around. We want that coaching staff, the manager, and us, and the staff, you know, the training staff, uh, right. clubhouse guys. That's our crew. That's who we go to battle with for 162 games. And we don't want front office people come down there glaring at us when things are going bad. Like, you know, it's like, hey, go up to your office. We'll handle things here. You handle things upstairs. You make the moves. You make the, the, the you know, you go do the paperwork and, and tell us who the players are. In this clubhouse, we go out and play. So, no, as, as a player, we never like uh, – Having those, we, I had Jim Bowden in Cincinnati for five years. I thought he was great. I had a really good rapport with Jim, uh, and I really liked Jim. I had Pat Gillick in in Seattle, who I thought was was great too. Um, and and I think the good ones and the great ones they they really stay out of the day to day on field uniform personnel uh, activities. I think they they stay where they stay. You know, they go on the trips with us. They sit in first class with the managers and the coaching staff. Uh, but I think they try to be out of sight, out of mind because they're not as comfortable as they are up in the booth making the decisions because they got decisions to make during the season. Um, and that clubhouse in the middle of that clubhouse is not their sanctuary and they know it. So I, I think for the most part, they know their place and, and the good ones really kind of stay out of the player's way and, and do their job. Speaking of good ones out there, Major League Baseball lost two guys that were one of the greats. Lou Brock and Mr. Tom Seaver, two guys that have have paved the way for not just the way they played, but the way they've been ambassadors of the league. Um, as a player like yourself, I'm sure you see a lot of legends kind of come and go. A lot of the good ones are starting to fall off, unfortunately. Those two guys in general left a pretty decent mark on the league. Where do you stand with those guys? And do you have any stories of maybe them or your dad being around or your grandpa, anything of that nature? Well, Tom and, you know, Tom and dad were real close. Um, and, uh, you know, they would stay together early on in their, in my dad's career. Uh, a lot of time in spring training, you know, barbecuing together, never were teammates. Uh, but I remember as a young kid, I remember being around and, and Seaver being around and his, and his wife, Nancy, and, you know, he just passed away and I saw a picture of his wife and I said, man, I remember that face as, as, <laughs> clear, clear as, you know, clear as a bell. And, um, Lou, you know, I, I remember in 1979 taking a shower at the 79 all-star game in Seattle with Lou Brock. And I remember nothing but good memories of, of Lou and how he treated me on the field and just, and, and just watching him as a player, you know, this was the all-time greatest, uh, base dealer until Ricky Henderson came along. You know, Lou Brock setting records. So Lou is a, a graceful man, a kind man. Uh, I never heard a bad word about him. Um, you know, as far as Tom goes, man, you talk about the, the 60s and the 70s, uh, you know, and, and this is coming from dad once again. A lot, of, a lot of the old stories I draw from my father, and, and he would always talk about 
Steve Carlton, best lefty in baseball. And right, right next side to, to Steve Carlton was always, and Tom Seaver was the best right-hander. So arguably the best, the best right-handed pitcher of the seventies era, arguably, you know, there's a lot of guys, a lot of great pitchers out there, but Tom was, was definitely, you know, and, and is to this day, one of the greatest of all time. When you, because you were such a good hitter and because you were such a, you were a pro, when you hear of guys like that, like Tom Seaver being the greatest right-hander and probably of all time in the back of your mind, are are you ever like, man, I'm pretty sure I could have hit off that guy. I would have loved to size that guy up just well, because he's considered the greatest. I want to see what I could do. Well, I don't think you can call anybody the greatest. I, you know, you, you compare people to their era and and who dominated their era the most. You can't compare a guy from 1950 to a guy from 2020. It, it just doesn't stack up from a physical standpoint. You know, guys in 1950, you, you watch guys in, in a big league bullpen right now. They got five guys throwing 98 miles an hour. In 1950, nobody in the league threw 98 miles an hour. Now you got five, four or five on, on a given staff. So I don't think physically, I think as time moves on, it's human development. You can't compare eras. So yes, I look at Tom, I put him in a box for the era that he played in and say, one of the greatest ever, you know, you, then you go back, you know, before his time. Yeah, Cy Young. Could he pitch today? Well, no, he wouldn't stand out today from a physical standpoint. But in his time, he's one of the greatest of all time. You know, I my generation was Randy Johnson and Greg Maddox and Pedro Martinez. In my eyes, those are the some of the greatest pitchers of all time. Today, you're watching a Verlander, a, a Kershaw, the career he's had. Uh, right now, uh, a Garrett Cole, what he's doing. These are some of the greatest pitchers of the current generation. So I don't think you can really – no, and I never thought about, oh, what it would be like to you know face Tom Seaver. No, it probably wouldn't be a big deal. It would probably be like just like facing any other nasty right-hander. So to me, that's, uh, that's not something that you really think about. And, but but that being said, it's usually not fun when you're facing that bona fide number one guy. <laughs> it's usually not a fun day for you. <laughs> well, Try to wait to get a, a, a knock and a walk, baby. Well, if you cannot tell me who the greatest of all time is, let me ask you: greatest this. of all time? If I if I had to put it one on it, Greg Maddox. Greg Maddox is the greatest pitcher of all time. All time technician. Okay, because of the technical stuff that he was able to do. Did you ever go? You you had to have gone up against Roger Clemens, right? His misses, his misses were an inch. You had to have gone up against Roger Clemens, right? Or was that was that past you? Yeah, Clemens, one of the great ones. I always thought that Roger Clemens was the greatest of all time, and I don't know why because the Rocket was just he was such a machine. Think think of where that's coming from. You, come on. Well, true. I'm a guy who watches, just like (laughs) most of the people that are listening to this podcast. We never we never stepped into your shoes. That's why it's tough to really. Uh, you know, unequivocally say he's the greatest. You know, who, who is the greatest? Is Michael Jordan the greatest? Or is LeBron James, when it's all said and done, going to be the greatest? Or was Wilt Chamberlain the greatest? Well, I know Michael Jordan was the greatest of his time. I know LeBron's the greatest of his time. And Wilt Chamberlain was probably the greatest of his time. So, well, so who's, you, who's greater than the next one? Who knows that you can make that argument in any sport. Well, so you, could, you could pay for the, my time for my time. Greg Maddox is the best, most efficient right-handed pitcher I've ever seen. The best lefty I ever faced was Randy Johnson. And 
that's for me. And that's in over like a 20 year span. Those are in the Roger Clemens. Wow. What a great pitcher, Hall of Famer. Uh, there's a lot of just take that whole Atlanta Brave staff, Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. There's not a rest in that in that staff. Pedro's one of the for a three or four year period. You take Pedro Martinez and you look at his stats. It's one of the greatest three or four year runs in the history of baseball. You know, people don't even talk about the Kevin Browns of the world that were as nasty as, as you could possibly imagine. And we haven't got into relievers, you know, the Marianos of the world, the Trevor Hoffmans of the world. A lot of great pitchers out there, but, but you know, you pin me down, I got to say that, Greg Maddox. Now, when, when I make a, an assumption like that, you know, I'll lean on past generation. Hey, Dad, what do you think? You, you know, in his eyes, Steve Carlton was the greatest of his time. Tom Seaver's the greatest. But now what do you think? Compare them to Maddox and, and, and how did they affect their generation, you know, accordingly? What's your opinion on that? I'll get a little feedback. So so it's interesting. And I think that's what makes baseball so great is from generation to generation, you can have different opinions and it's a debate and there are no facts. It's just, well, oh, he was the best. No, he's the best. He's the best. And that's what makes baseball cool. You can compare these people. But in the end, just to unequivocally, and I hate, I just used that word twice, to use that, uh, to say this guy's the best, well, <laughs> that's your opinion. Well, al- but that's what, that's what Brett Boone's opinion is. Well, allow me, allow me just to uh, spread a little bit of what I think of the greatest player of any kind of sport is. There's one greatest player of any sport of any kind, any time in the world, and it all revolves around one human being. And it's Michael Jordan. He's the greatest athlete of any sport that's ever played him anything. Well, and I'll, why do you say? And I'll why tell you why. Athlete. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Why, why is why is he because the greatest athlete? What does the, that have to do with it? What make no the greatest sports figure of all? And he had not only did he have the complete game, not only did he have that IQ, but he asked something. And I'm going to ask you this question also, from a competitive standpoint. I've been around Michael Jordan a couple times and I've never been around him to the competitive nature that I've heard from other people as well. But I do know that his competitive nature probably could be diagnosed as psychopath. He is a psycho when it comes to winning, when it comes to gambling, when it comes to that nature, he has a killer instinct that I don't think a lot of athletes have. You have, you have a pedigree, Brett Boone. You were born in a lineage of family where that DNA is inside of you. And you were able to capitalize and improve upon and use those skills and make it into one of the better careers in baseball, a very great career. But I don't, I've never seen the way a guy eats at a player, eats at somebody else, the way Michael Jordan does. The fact that he gambles on pitches of baseball games when he watches with people when he he has to cheat at the game of go fish with his roommates parents when he's staying at their house for the weekend when he's in college he wants that last shot he wants to drive his foot into someone's neck even when they're losing he still wants them to say the words i own you you own me who in baseball had that who in football has that psychopath you can do stats all day baseball is a stat driven conversation but when you get there's one thing that you cannot measure and that's that killer killer instinct of a supreme winner supreme winner who plays both sides of the who plays who plays both sides of the ball too not everybody in baseball plays offense and defense football there's no offense and defense hockey there is but in terms of major sports well 
All right. It's very simple. You're always going to hear, you know, and first of all, they're never going to talk about an average player saying he was more competitive than anybody else, even though I played with a lot of decent players that were just as competitive as the greatest players I've ever played against, but they're not the greatest players. So they're not going to talk about him in that light. But you know, you're going to talk about Michael Jordan. Oh, he was as competitive. And I watched the, the, is it the last dance? Yeah. I found it. I, I thought it was riveting. I thought it was great. And, and I loved Jordan's part. And he'd just tell you, matter of fact, you know, and, and I remember in the last dance, he said 1993. And I think Jordan considers himself at his, at his pinnacle in 1993 physically. Oh, yeah. And, and, and the quote from him was, you know, and, and in 1993, they were saying, it was me and Clyde Drexler were number one and number two of the best players in the NBA. And he said, let me tell you the way I was in 1993, Drexler wasn't even close. And he said it in a way that it didn't come off as arrogant. It came off as genuine. That's a, that's a fact right there. I loved, I loved the last dance. I did do Michael Jordan's obviously in a lot of people's minds, the greatest basketball player ever. He might be it. Once again, it's something that the generations can argue about forever, but definitely, uh, right now, he's considered by most the greatest of all time, and, and he's earned that. Um, I think Kobe Bryant followed up in, in Michael. I think he looked to Michael, and he was the kind of the second coming of Michael. You of know, course. you look at Kobe, Kobe Bryant was unbelievable and probably a better shooter than Jordan. But he had that same competitive, I want to beat you, I want to beat your brains in, I want to run you over. And that's what you have to be on that field. There's no, there's no letting up. Put your, put your foot on their neck, and you don't let them up till you win the game. And I think all the great ones have that, you know. So in yeah. baseball, is there somebody to compare him to? Is there somebody that you've played against that you were like? I, I played, I played with a lot of them. You know, when I, my one year with the Atlanta Braves, you know, just that that pitching staff. And, and I never like to give pitchers credit, but Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, I think it could be the greatest, arguably the greatest pitching staff of all time. I, and they all had that because they knew they were that good and they knew where they were going to beat you that each time they took the mound, they knew they were going to win. I, I played with a lot of players that were, were that good, but, I, it, but everybody didn't have that killer, killer instinct, but most of the great ones have it. I've been around, like I said, I told you I've covered sports in Chicago for 13 years in one point of my career. I was in all sorts of locker rooms and all sorts of press conferences. And the last year of Maddox's career, he finished as a Cub. And I've always said this. If you walked down the street, you wouldn't know who he was in terms of if he was just a random guy in Chicago on a crowded street. He just kind of had this, you know, a very average kind of look to him. But when he was in that locker room, there was a swagger to that guy that I've never seen before. And his career was pretty much over. That last year with the Cubs, he still did some things, but I've never seen a swagger come off a guy like that. So I'm not going to argue that Maddox is not one of the greatest of all times because he had something else. I've seen a lot of pitchers come in and out of locker rooms that they were cocky, but they weren't like that. He was more of a, like you said, he just knew what he was in terms of his atmosphere. Yeah, he's Maddox. He's he's eccentric. And and I loved I you know I got and a to good play guy. One year. He was really nice. One, yeah, I got to play one year in Atlanta. I played with Greg and he was kind of my locker mate and we rode to and from the yard together. Played a lot of golf with him over the years. He's a, he's a character and he's a piece of work. Uh And he'll be on our podcast next week, right, Brett? He could. <laughs> 
<laughs> Greg, I'll tell you, Greg is. Uh, there's something about he, he. You're right. He has that something. He has the that swagger. factor. There's a and swagger. I remember, you know, we we we'd be taking a shower. Not to talk about showers too much on the same podcast, but Maddox would come in and all of us have shower shoes on. I'd say, "Hey, Greg, you're not going to wear your shower shoes." He goes, "Why? Why should I wear them? The rest of you are wearing them." <laughs> it was a good point, <laughs> but that's kind of a Maddox thing, you know. That's kind of a Maddox thing. But uh, no, nothing but but good memories of, of playing with Greg. All right. Well, as far as next week is concerned, we will see you then for Brett Boone. My name is Dan Levy. And remember, if you want to reach out to Brett, you can do that via Twitter at the moon 29 at the moon 29. You can follow, subscribe, enjoy everything that is Brett Boone. I'm Dan Levy. You can find me on Twitter at base on air. And if you want to go ahead and listen to this podcast and you found us, thank you for listening to us. Please share with your friends. Please tell everybody that we are on iTunes and you can listen to all of our past podcasts by heading over to iTunes and looking up the Brett Boone podcast. Once again, we had a lot of fun. Please subscribe, comment, tell your friends, share it. And we'll see you guys next week. Peace. All right, bud.